Have you ever heard of the uh, actor Johnny Depp? He's the actor who played in the movie uh, Edward Scissorhands, uh, also Pirate of the Caribbean. He is someone who has struggled with alcohol throughout his life. He says that he doesn't have a physical need for alcohol. But in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, he also admitted this. Alcohol is more my medication, my self-medication over the years, just to calm the circus. Once the circus kicks in, that is the festivities in the brain, it can be ruthless. I'm kind of socially inept, and alcohol was always a great crutch for me. Mingling at parties and stuff like that has always been not a nice experience for me. It's just not comfortable. So I found I needed to drink in those situations. Just slam a couple down and go, okay, I can muster up enough small talk to meander my way through this thing and get out the other side unscathed. That's what Johnny Depp said. Kind of interesting that a movie star is having difficulty with social gatherings and feels that he needs alcohol to cope with life. But like many people today, Johnny Depp has been taken captive by something that he feels he needs in order to make it through life. For Johnny Depp, it's alcohol. For others, it could be pornography. The enemy can use almost anything in order to subject a person to spiritual bondage. One's own emotions and feelings, like anger or the desire to get even. Even religion can be used by the enemy to take a person captive. Yet in spite of this, there is a way by which people who are subject to spiritual bondage, with God's help, can break free. And we see this in the passage we're going to read this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to begin by reading Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. It's a story of Lot and Abram. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ketileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Ketileomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketileomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Carnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavekirthaim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon, Tamar. So stop right there. I was going to have someone read this passage. 
And I said, I said, you know what? I better not do such a thing, right? There's a reason why I didn't, as you can see. But let me stop right there. Um, I want to just kind of summarize what has going on. There is an alliance of five kings and an alliance of four kings. The four kings are from the east. The five kings are from the west. The leader of the four king coalition is Ketoleomer, okay? And he has subjugated five kings and their kingdoms, two of which were the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. The five-king coalition was subject and subservient to the four-king coalition for 12 years. In the 13th year, they said, we don't want to pay tribute no more. Okay? Well, in the 14th year, the Ketaleomer and the coalition of four kings says, well, we're not going to let you get away with that. And so they went on this a military expedition. Okay? And so now there's a, a, a battle that's going on. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma and the king of Zeboam and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Ketaleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So there's a battle going on. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and, the, and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. Stop there. You can clearly see that Abram, uh, his nephew, Lot has been taken into captivity, okay? He's been taken into captivity. He no longer has his freedom. He's in bondage right now because he has been taken captive. And so when I read that passage, I ask myself, how did he get there? How does Lot get into a place where he's taken into captivity and is in bondage? How does that happen? How do people today get put in a position where they are in spiritual bondage and are taken captive by something? Whether it be alcohol or pornography or one's feelings of emotion, anger, the the desire for revenge. It could be anything that we are subject to and owns us and we can't stop it. How do we get there? How does he get there to be in bondage? there's going to be several factors that will lead Lot into becoming captive. The first factor that led, to, that led to Lot's captivity was the personal decisions that he made long before he was held captive. Okay, And in order to see this, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 13. You have to read the account before this chapter to see this. And if you recall, there was about a month ago, I gave a message on uh, uh, Genesis chapter 13 and had to do with family conflict. There was a conflict between Abram and Lot, and they both wanted the same land for their flocks and their herds. And Abram says, you know what? We shouldn't be in conflict with one another because we're brethren. We're of the same family. So he says to Lot, you choose 
whatever land you want to have, I'll let you, I'll let you have first dibs of the land. And so he starts making these decisions. And it is in these decisions that we see that are, that are at the root of him becoming captive later in life. Now, I didn't put this passage on the screen, but I just listen to me as I go through lots of decisions that are going to lead to his captivity. The first thing that Lot does when he makes a decision in determining what land he wants to, to, to live in is that his, his decision was centered on satisfying an immediate need which was not based on faith. Listen to what it says in Genesis 13:10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan that was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zor. There we see Lot. The first thing he does when he makes a decision is he looks and he sees all the land that was beautifully well watered. He wanted that well watered land. Why? Because he needed it for his flocks. It would sustain his flocks and it would sustain him. So it was a real need that he had, but it wasn't based on faith because the only factor that was being exercised in this decision was what he would see. It was well watered. His decision was based on what he saw. It wasn't based on faith, just like Adam and Eve. They saw that the, the, the fruit of the tree was good for food, but they also knew the command not to eat it. But their decision was based on what they saw, not on faith. And so the first decision, the first element in leading someone to becoming captive is to, is to make a decision that is centered on one's personal needs, but it's not grounded in faith. That's what, that's what Lot does. Secondly, Lot's decision led him away from the greatest source of godly influence in his life. Genesis 13 and 11 says this, Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So what is Lot doing? He's making his decision, and his decision is leading him away from Abram, and Abram is the godliest person that Lot knows. And whenever a person moves away from individuals who are godly, you're not heading down a right path. You could potentially set yourself up where you could become captive to something when you remove yourself from someone who is, uh, has godly influence in your life. Lot does this, okay? Thirdly, Lot's decision led him to a place where he was near wicked and sinful men, subjecting himself to their influence in his life. Genesis 13, 12, and 13. Then Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So here he does, he makes a decision to remove himself from godly influential people, and he puts himself near people who are ungodly and sinful people, who now he's now subject to their influence in his life. Not very wise. And lastly, Lot's decision was based on the short-term benefits of the well-watered land without considering the long-term consequences of living near a wicked and sinful people. In essence, he was short-sighted. So whenever a person uh, 
makes decisions that are centered on satisfying immediate needs, which are not based on faith. They remove themselves from godly influential people. They then put themselves near people who are sinful and ungodly and are subject to their influence in their life. And they, and they make their decisions based on the short-term immediate gratifications without considering the long-term consequences. You have started a path that will, may lead to captivity long before you become captive. All of this simply to say that the reason why Lot is taken into captivity started with his own personal decisions long before he became captive. And oftentimes, people are unaware of the decisions that lead up to such a place. So how did I get here? Well, it started way back when, when you made these decisions long ago. That's how Lot became captive. It started with his own decisions. Second factor that led to Lot's captivity was the reality that he was living in the midst of a war. He was living in the midst of conflict. I read the first 12 uh, verses. I'm not going to read them again, but you see that there was conflict going on. He was living in a place where there was continual warfare and conflict. And when you're living in a society and you're living in a world in which we live where there is constant warfare, spiritual warfare I'm talking about, that is a factor as to why an individual can become captive and bondage to something. This is evident in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, where the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or schemes of the devil. What does that tell us? That is implying, he's telling you, put armor on, put it on every day. Why? Because we're living in a time of constant spiritual conflict. It's around us everywhere. And there's two things about this conflict that I want, us, that I want to, to, to point out. Number one, the conflict is against an invisible foe. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness of the heavenly places. Right? So the enemy that can... Uh, that is at work in subduing us, is invisible. And secondly, the battle is inward. It's an inward battle. This is seen in Romans chapter 7, verse 23. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And Paul is simply saying, there's something going on in my body that is warring against that which I know is true and good for me, but there's an inward battle in my mind, in my body, in my desires that are desiring me or driving me to do one thing that is not what God wants me to do, and the knowledge of what I know to be true in my mind. There's an inward battle and struggle. Even, even Johnny Depp mentioned it. It was a struggle. He says, uh, he talked about how it was uh, the activity of the mind. He struggled with it. So we clearly, uh, people become a second factor that, that leads to an individual becoming captive is the fact that we're living in a world where there is warfare going on all around us every single day, spiritually speaking. The third factor that leads to Lot's captivity 
was the failed leadership of those who were called to protect Lot. Okay? Listen to what it says in verses 10 through 12. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits. What does that mean? Back in those days, and this was a region south of the Dead Sea. It, had, it was filled with petroleum. And so what they would do is they would go out there and they would dig up to get the petroleum and they would leave pits in there, in the ground. And that's what would happen. Um, and it, could be, it would be treacherous to be fighting on such ground like that. So the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their provisions and went their way, and they also took Lot. So here we see that the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the midst of the battle, they as kings are supposed to be leading the people in the battle, protecting them, looking out for them. But what do these two selfish kings do when things got tough? They took off and saved their own skin. And in the process of doing so, they left the people who they were supposed to be protecting vulnerable. And anyone who is in a leadership position who, who, who um, ignores their responsibility can often lead those who are under them vulnerable to captivity. Moms and dads as leaders right? Not just pastors of churches or leaders of organizations. Anyone who's a leader, and moms and dads are leaders. And when parents and leaders uh, ignore their responsibilities, then those under their care are vulnerable and can become captive by something over time. So captivity is not just simply because of the individual who is captive, though their decisions are a factor in that. There are other elements as well spiritual warfare, and those who are in leadership positions who abdicate their responsibilities and leave those under their care who are vulnerable. That's how he became captive. And that's how people today are captive. But when we look at Abram, Abram is going to find out and he's going to do something about this. So we continue reading in verse 13 to 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time the word Hebrew was mentioned in Scripture. For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and, all, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And so we see here uh, Abram is going to be successful in setting an individual, his, his brother free from captivity. How does he do that? How is he successful in setting his brother free from captivity? And what he does in setting his, his, his nephew Lot free from captivity is something that those of us who know someone who is captive under something can do, and it's also something that a person who is captive by something can do as well. 
The first thing that Abram does, I want to point out, is that he was successful in setting his brother free from captivity because he exercised his faith in God. He exercised his faith in God. You say, well, how did Abraham, in the passages that you just read, exercise his faith in God? How is his faith evident here? At the end of chapter 13, God revealed to Abram what? He said to Abram, I want you to look at the land that you're going to live in. I want you to look northward, southward, eastward, westward. I want you to look at all the land, and I want you to see it because this is the land I'm going to give to you and your descendants forever. In fact, I am so sure I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do for you and have, that you're going to have descendants, even though he had no children at the time. He says that when people see, if people could count the, the dust on the ground, that's how many descendants you're going to have. God was saying, you're going to have descendants, okay, even though you don't have any children. Now, that's in Abram's mind. Now this event happens. He has someone that he cares about who's in bondage. And what's he do? He takes 318 individuals, trained men, and some others, and he seeks out the king of the four-king coalition who demolished other peoples and who had subjugated the five-king coalition. This man, Abram, goes and he seeks him out and starts battling with him. Why would he do such a thing? That's a pretty risky thing to do, isn't it? You with your 318 men are going to go take this four-king coalition on, and you think you're going to win? What are the odds of his, what do you think his odds were of surviving, not even winning this battle? Very, very few. Very, very small. He had no business going up against this four-king coalition let alone defeating them. But he did so. Why? Because of his faith. He knew that God had promised him that he was going to have descendants and that this land was going to be his and his, and his offspring. And I know God's going to be with me as I go and help my brother who's in captivity because he said he's going to do so, and I believe him. So it gives me confidence to face that which I am struggling with and be victorious over it. The only reason why he was going to be victorious, first of all, was because he exercised his faith in the living God who made promises to him. That's number one. There's no way anyone can overcome any kind of spiritual bondage and be set free from captivity if faith is not going to be exercised. It is not possible. And Abram did so. He put his life on the line and trust completely in God's protection and provision as he went out and faithfully fought a power and a foe far greater than he could deal with on his own. That is true with us as well. Faith must be exercised in, over to, in order to overcome any kind of captivity that you may be dealing with in your life. Secondly, Abram was successful in setting his brother free from captivity because he was able to overcome past failures. You know, Oftentimes, if we have failed at something in our, if we failed in our walk with the Lord, we've done something we know we shouldn't have done, or we said something we shouldn't have said, or we're thinking things we know we shouldn't think, that can paralyze an individual from going forward and becoming successful and overcoming that which may be uh, putting them in bondage. Abram, understand this, Abram was an individual, the last time he ventured out, he went to Egypt, and what did he do? He failed miserably, didn't he? 
He went to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. He goes to Egypt and he tells his wife, tell the Egyptians you're my sister. And as a result, he ended up losing his wife. The, the Pharaoh of Egypt could not get Abram out of his life fast enough. He had a poor testimony. He failed miserably. Now, when this incident happens and his, lot, his nephew Lot is taken into captivity, he could have very easily said, you know what? The last time I went and ventured out, I failed miserably. And I don't know if I, I, don't know if I can do this. And the past failure may have paralyzed him from moving forward and being victorious over the enemy that had captured Lot and subjected Lot. What made him successful was that he was able to overcome past failures. And we cannot allow past failures if we're dealing with something that's got its hook into us We cannot allow past failures to keep us from moving forward. Lot was able to do so. Thirdly, Abram was successful in setting his brother free from captivity because he did not enter the battle all by himself. We are doomed to fail whenever we're dealing with something that we're struggling with and we try to do it alone. It's not going to work. Abram was successful because he was not alone in the battle. He had 318 trained servants with him, and he had his friends Mamre, Eshkol, and Anar with him who helped him. Uh, With a new year just around the corner, most of us are busy scribbling down resolutions. We desire radical change in the way we look, the way we behave, the way we make our living. But if research regarding new year resolutions is it all true, most of us will fall short of our goals. Why is that? In his book, Who's Got Your Back?, author Keith Ferrazzi says, it is because we too often go it alone when trying to change. That is true. Consider the story of Jean Nittich. Jean was overweight as a child. She was overweight in high school, and despite endless diet regimens, Her waistline kept expanding throughout her 20s and her 30s. She fit the medical definition of obese. Jean tried diets and pills that promised to take off the pounds, but she always gained back the weight that she lost. In 1961, at age 38, Jean started a diet sponsored by New York City Department of Health. After 10 weeks, she was 20 pounds lighter, but starting to lose motivation. She realized that she, what she needed was someone to talk to for some support. Since she couldn't get her pals to make the trek with her to Manhattan to sign up for the official health department regimen, she brought the so-called science of the program to their living rooms in Queens. Jeans and her friends would all lose weight together. Out of those first meetings grew Weight Watchers, widely recognized as one of the most effective weight loss programs in the world. Nittich's idea was simple. Losing weight requires a combination of dieting and peer support. She held weekly meetings with weight check-ins and goal setting to promote accountability, coupled with honest, supportive conversation about the struggles, setbacks, and victories over losing weight. Eventually, Nittich, who lost 72 pounds, rented office space and started leading groups all across New York City. In 1963, she incorporated, as of 2007, this was 13 years ago, Weight Watchers International um, retail sales 
of over $4 billion from licenses, franchisees, membership fees, exercise programs, cookbooks, portion-controlled food products, and a magazine. Nittich retired in 1984, leaving behind a legacy that has saved the lives of literally millions of men and women. As the company's current CEO, Dave Kershoff, notes, though the science of weight loss has evolved over the years, the core of Gene's program, support and accountability, has remained constant. The reason why she was successful in what she was in bondage to and was captive to, with her, it was her struggle with her weight, the reason why she was successful is because she did not enter the battle alone. She got with people and she uh, encouraged them and they encouraged each other and were able to overcome that which was in her and other people's bondage. All simply to say that when we, need, when we want to overcome something that we may become spiritually uh, captive to, you don't enter such battle alone. You must be with a group. And that is true. It was true then, it was true with Abram, and it is true today. You know, as we think, maybe you're, some, maybe you're dealing with something now. Maybe you can, you can think of something that you may have struggled with in the past and it was very difficult. It had its hooks in you and you just couldn't deal with it on your own. Or again, maybe you're dealing with such something now or you know someone who's dealing with something. But in in reality, we are all in bondage or were in bondage to something, were we not? Human beings are in bondage and in captivity to sin. There's no human being who's never not been in bondage to sin. We were all in captivity to sin. And it was because of Jesus and his willingness to come into this world and to be among us that broke that captivity. In fact, it says in Ephesians 4.8 that Jesus, when he descended on high, has led captivity captive. Jesus did that for you and for me. He has led captivity captive. And in Christ, one is truly free. But before he led captivity captive, he spent time with his disciples and shared a meal with them in the upper room. It was an intimate meal on the night that he was going to be betrayed. And he told them, he told them, in essence, how much these individuals meant to him with the Last Supper. And it is that that we now remember, that we were all in bondage to sin, every single one, but Jesus has come and has set us free from that. Keep that in mind this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When supper had ended, he also took the cup and he blessed it and said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is shed for you so that you may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes again. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, 
Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ died for you and for me and has set us free. We're free. And we don't have to be in bondage to anything. For this we give thanks to our Savior who died on the cross. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. The table is set and all is prepared. Now I'm going to go around and pass out the elements. Just I will ask that you just hold on to them so that we can partake together. body of Christ that is broken for you and for me. Let us partake together. The blood of Christ that is shed for you and for me so that our sins may be forgiven. Let us drink together. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for the precious gift of Jesus and for his sacrifice on this earth so that we could be made free in you. It is our prayer, Lord, that with the supper that we celebrate this morning, the meal that we celebrate this morning, that we would be reminded of the freedom that we have in you and the price that was paid. We ask that you would give us strength daily to live a life that demonstrates that we are no longer under bondage to anyone or anything, but that we are free in you. We thank you for this meal. We thank you for the church, for the fellowship, for your spirit. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless us this day and throughout the rest of the week as we seek to accomplish your purpose and live the kind of life that you want us to live here on this earth for as long as you have us here. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I would now ask that you would please stand for our closing song, Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. been set free and our chains are truly gone and as a result we are forever his we're forever the Lord's remember that today and every day for the rest of this new year receive the benediction may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you his peace. Amen. And God be with you all.